We're going to start this now. Okay. Yo, yo, we're on call with Minister Zumbi, and we want to discuss, man, you know, the ancestorship of Desmond Tutu, man. So you were just saying something really intriguing that uh, you were stating that when you deal with spiritual leaders like a Desmond Tutu, they really approach the world from a different standpoint. Mm-hmm. It's It's like... It's it's more of a of a of a visionary type of view of the world. In other words, they look at the world not as it is, but what it can be and what it should be. Okay, if that makes any sense. Is that practical? <sighs> Depends on who you who you talk to. Now we can do a comparison of Desmond Tutu to some of the other uh, giants who've come out of that uh, anti-apartheid cadre. So if we were to look at a Desmond Tutu versus, say, a Stephen Biko or Chris Hani, okay, it's, it's almost like a, a, a Martin Malcolm dynamic. It's like, the way King, King, King was looking at the world where he was trying to tap into people's humanity. Mm-hmm. Whereas Malcolm was looking at the reality and says, okay, here's the way the world is. Now, how do we fix it? Right. Okay. Because I, I think sometimes when you look at these spiritual visionaries, you know, especially Tutu and others, they... I wonder if they're detached from reality, not not intentionally, but sometimes when when you're in that spiritual plane, you may be detached from the people. Hmm. You, you, so you see. like like saying I've been to the mountaintop, which means you're far away from everybody else. Mm-hmm. You're at the pinnacle. You you're, you're in a place the mountaintop can't it doesn't fit a lot of people <laughs> right the right. masses cannot be at the mountaintop mm-hmm. yeah and and sometimes as you as you evolve spiritually there's sometimes people get left behind okay because it's it's like when you get on a spiritual journey and you reach a certain threshold where you know once you cross that threshold, there's no turning back. You know, and and sometimes I think I don't want to say it's the danger of things, but sometimes, you know, when when you look at spiritual leaders, you also have to wonder, are they still connected to the masses on an everyday level? Hmm. You know, Um But in the case of Desmond Tutu, I don't think that was so much the issue, but I think Desmond Tutu had kind of a king-like view where he wanted to tap into people's humanity, particularly those who who we feel may not have any humanity at all. Yeah, and so... so if we're considering the ancestor Desmond Tutu, mm-hmm. 
And we want to say, you know, um, Ashe. Yes. And may he rest well with the ancestral village. May he be welcomed in the ancestral village. May his beloved soon replace the pain of separation and loss mm. with the joy of knowing that fresh water has returned to its source. Ashe, Ashe, Ashe. Uh, when we consider an ancestor Desmond Tutu, mm. what is going to be the impact of what he did? You know, so, you know, right yeah. now there's this big conversation about go along to get along. Right. And so can we put Desmond Tutu in that go along to get along game? I, I, is he I Mr. Kumbaya? Right. I can't say that because when when you look at someone like a Desmond Tutu, he wasn't just in the cathedral. Okay. He was actually even though he was coming from a, a spiritual religious base, he was using that to address and to fight the oppression in his country of Azania or South Africa. Okay. So he wasn't one of these people from the pulpit that was just, you know, teaching and preaching. He basically was on the ground level. And, and I think that's one of the things that we must give Desmond Tutu credit for is that he he didn't just you know was in the cathedral doing mass he was an activist he was a real activist and i i think sometimes we we need that we need more of the spiritual leadership to be involved in fighting the evils and the ills that plague this planet So we hmm. so we must get yeah, so we must give Desmond Tutu credit for being at ground zero. Okay, he was at ground zero. Was he still playing go along to get along? <laughs> was he still um, playing well, Kumbaya? You know? Well, here here's the here's the flip side to that. Um, did you did you watch the HBO documentary where they did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings? <sighs> No, I didn't because I was so disappointed that the truth and reconciliation process was being used. Okay. I, because truth and reconciliation process doesn't hold anybody truly accountable. Okay. Nobody has to pay. Nobody right. gets punished. And mm -hmm. I, I, I don't believe that punishment truly changes everything. But I do believe that punishment will prevent some further acts from happening. Mm -hmm. I had a disappointment with with Tutu and his behavior during 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 those hearings. And I'll tell you why. It it seems like Tutu was trying to give the assassins and the others who participated in the killings a pass, but yet you crucify Winnie Mandela for the actions that she had to take. And I know everybody remembers what happened in 1989 when, you know, those two boys were basically given, uh, how shall I put it? A, a gasoline necktie. 
and was set afire. And that was a huge controversy back then because they said, oh, she, no, those were spies. Okay. So when you're in a warlike situation, you know, the rules change. And because Nelson was still in prison, Winnie had to hold that thing together. And I didn't like the way that Desmond Tutu basically crucified Winnie Mandela during those hearings. But it seems like you wanted to give the, you know, all the assassins and all the murderers, you know. I, yeah. Yeah. That, that was something that really didn't sit well with me. So the colonizers got a pass, but the patriots were, were punished. Yeah. And, and and that's why I said, you know, there's another thing that we have to be on the lookout for. And, you know, I, I have this conversation with my, with my good friend Shakir, who's in the Bronx. He's originally from Cape Town. And one of the things that I pointed out was, why is it that people such as Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela are so revered and celebrated, but yet you want to erase the legacies of a Stephen Biko, erase the legacy of a Chris Hani. Okay. And others who were a part of the PAC versus the ANC. Okay. Okay. Because if, if you know about the ANC versus the PAC, the PAC was kind of like the military or the militant faction of the ANC before it broke away. Uh, you know, I struggle with this, brother. I struggle with this. Now, I'm not as well versed in this as you are. That's why we're having this conversation with Minister Zumbi. <laughs> Yo, brother Minister Zumbi knows what he's talking about. As I said before, he doesn't give his opinion. He gives his research. <laughs> so salute to brother Minister Zumbi Shawala. Um, I'm not as well versed in that. The historical information and all the political ramifications and right. the environment in which mm -hmm. these decisions and activities were made. But yeah, it just seemed it, to me, mm -hmm. it seemed to me that when there was an opportunity to really make sure that those who inflicted pain had to pay some level of restitution and had to fix the problem, right? because they were praying together and worshiping together afterwards and holding hands and singing Kumbaya, Mm -hmm. That never happened. Right. And, and people were really just excited about look at look how the, the black South Africans and the white South Africans are holding hands and walking together and sharing the same restaurants and the same streets. But the poverty that was created with those colonizers, the mm. the you know, familial damage that was created by right. those colonizers colonizing. Mm -hmm. Right. The destruction on the mentality, the crime level that mm. happened as a result of some of the behaviors of those colonizers mm. was yeah. never addressed. Right. And I often just wonder if this go along, get along, you know, and I'm not accusing Dr. King of it. Dr. King was really far from that, even though uh, the mainstream media and mainstream America wants to present him 
as the secondary Prince of Peace. Um, is peace the way to solving the problems and to bringing people together when people have been abusive to each other? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'll, I'll use a quote from uh, former President John F. Kennedy. Okay. He says, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. And people have to understand what really got Mandela out of jail. Part of what got Mandela out of jail was El Presidente Fidel Castro sending troops, not only to South Africa, but to Angola. Okay. So you, you, you telling me that uh, the prayers, <laughs> the prayers of the righteous didn't free Nelson Mandela? You know, and I'm I'm going to kind of be blunt <laughs> with, um, you know, I, 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 well, I remember Brother Steve Coakley. And the one thing he says is people underestimate the power of kicking ass. <laughs> <laughs> okay no matter how you slice it people respect your ability to kick ass you know and, and i think that's why many of us gravitated and resonated with the malcolms the che Guevara's, and the the bicos and the chris hanis and the college muhammad's okay because they understand that what good is truth without force? Okay. All right. Now you just dropped a whole bunch of names, and I want to make sure that the coders and the followers of the GOAT, you know, the gospel of Afronomics theology, understand. Who is Stephen Biko? Okay, Stephen Biko. Um in the early 70s. Stephen Biko was the one that actually launched a black consciousness movement in South Africa. Okay. Like, did you ever see the movie Cry Freedom? I believe I was forced to sit through that when I was a little (laughs) younger. (laughs) Well, you know, and I I think Denzel did a very good job of of portraying um, Bantu Stephen Biko. Okay. And, you know, the apartheid government looked upon Biko as as a disruptor. And why was it that Stephen Biko was basically assassinated in a South African jail where he was basically beaten to death? And this is around 19, this is around 1977 when this when when this happened. So Stephen Biko was he was Mr. Get Woke of his time. He was waking the South Africans up to their their power, their empowerment mm-hmm. as people of African or as black people. <laughs> yeah, because the one thing you understand, the one thing that you'll understand when you study history is that anytime you see an oppressed people fight back, the first weapon they use is their culture. And that's one of the things that uh, Bantu Stephen Biko was was beginning to use. You know, it's like you know, stop thinking like an Afrikaner, you know, be who you are, whether it's Zulu or any other clan or tribe that you belong to. 
Okay, so culture is always the first weapon that an oppressed people use to fight back. And and when you say an Afrikaner, who are we talking about? Are, 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 are we talking about the uh, colonizers? Brother Stephen Biko wanted to bring his picture up to the screen. Okay. Um, so when we say stop acting like a Afrikaner, what are we saying? Who, We're saying what, basically saying stop stop thinking and acting like white people. Okay, stop speaking their language. Because uh, I remember there was a, a controversy, and I wish Shakir, I wish I could get a hold of Shakir because he could probably give you greater insight because he lived through that experience. You know, um, but the 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 parallels of what went on in South Africa are similar to what we experience here in the states believe it or not. And, and, I, and I'll tell you this, okay. Um, Shakir told me something that was really unnerving. Okay. He said that once apartheid had been officially dismantled, all of a sudden you had a huge drug problem in the townships. And what he told me was, the way that we were bombarded with crack cocaine in the 80s, they were bombarded with crystal meth. And they never had that type of drug problem, even during apartheid in the townships. It only happened after the official dismantling of apartheid. Hmm. All right. So yeah. the people are becoming woke. Stephen yes. Biko was raising the consciousness. Nelson Mandela mm -hmm. is taking action and raising. Winnie Mandela is taking consciousness and and waking people up and asking mm -hmm. for change. Uh, Desmond Tutu is asking for change. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, you're telling me that the drug problem increases. Well, after after this, after the official dismantling of apartheid, because one of the things you have to look at is this. During apartheid, the whites owned at least 87 percent of the land. Once you dismantled apartheid, they still own 87 percent of the land. So what really changed? Because one of the things in a revolution is that the land changes hands. And for the most part, it didn't. In fact, in 2010 at the World Cup, Coca-Cola was the corporate sponsor. And they basically froze out all of the local vendors. I'm talking about cab drivers, street vendors, where basically it was just Coca-Cola and other multinational corporations. And they just froze out the little people. It's kind of like what happened in Atlanta when they did the Olympics. Okay. 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 Yeah. So, so yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that we talked about in our last conversation was be a cop, a creator, owner, and producer. Yes, sir. Based on what you're telling me, since the 
Afrikaners, you know, the Blancos had 87% of the land and control of the resources. Mm -hmm. It was challenging. It was difficult for, you know, the black South Africans to become creators, owners, and producers. Is this the message that Stephen Biko, that Desmond Tutu, that Nelson and Winnie Mandela were saying? Were they telling them to be cops, be creator, owner, and producers? Were they teaching empowerment is what <clears throat> I'm getting towards. Because, you know, right. on our show, we deal with empowerment. So empowerment, we look at stuff right. that happened historically, and we try to learn lessons so we can empower ourselves for our future endeavors. Yeah, I, I think it's the age-old adage of, okay... Do we try to reconcile or do we just break off and go off on our own? Okay. And those who want to go off on their own, the Winnie Mandela's, the Pico's, the Chris Hani's, those are the ones who are looking at empowering the people at a grassroots level. Okay. As opposed to a Tutu and a Mandela to where now you, you create these alliances that may not be in the best interest of your people. You see, because how, how do you heal a people that has been so traumatized for, you know, whether it's four or 500 years and that has not been addressed. In fact, going back to the, the HBO documentary where they looked at the truth and reconciliation, you had some people who were, I guess you would say they were given a summons to show up. Some of them didn't even bother to show up. They said, I'm not coming. And then the ones that did show little to no remorse about what they did. So we had this whole thing about truth and reconciliation where they ain't even really care. Mm -hmm. They didn't reconcile. Right. And 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 here's another thing. You and know, we fell for that. You know, what's that? And we, and I'm speaking of you know us being in solidarity with South African brothers, the Black mm -hmm. African South African brothers. We fell for that. Yeah. And are we falling for it now? You know, when we look at the pushback that we're getting with states like Florida with their Stop Woke Act, mm, and the okay. big concern about you know critical race theory <laughs> now now the critical race theory i find interesting because the last time i heard that i was in college that's in the mid 90s and the one thing people need to to think about is why is critical race theory popping up out of nowhere all of a sudden nobody's talked about critical race theory for 30 years and now it's an issue Now it's an issue. So you have to look at, and, and it's something that uh, Dr. Amos Wilson always says, if you see a situation, don't look at who's suffering, look at who profits from it or who benefits from it. Wow. And you know what, uh, Brother EZD, who just said the ANC came to power, mm -hmm. then the truth and reconciliation began. Tutu will be remembered for his laughter and his crying while the land and economic structures still remain the same. Thanks, Brother Easy D, for your tapping in with your comment. Um, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he just kind of exemplified everything that we just 
Easy D, good job, man. That's that's a great message. Um, so if that's what happened in the past, mm-hmm. how can we prevent that from happening now? Is this Obama having a beer with the person who? <laughs> here, 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 here's here's how I look at things. Okay. Whenever we take on any spiritual path, as African people, we have a tendency to take it on as a culture and a lifestyle, while everyone else uses it as a means to an end. Okay. So you don't get caught up in all of the pomp and circumstance. Okay. So one of the things that Dr. Clark said was, whatever your spiritual path is, Africanize it and use it to your benefit. Okay? So if you're a Christian, Africanize it the way that our ancestor, uh, Reverend Albert Klieg, who was the godfather of black Christian nationalism. Okay? He's the Christian version of Malcolm. I say that. Okay. So whatever we do, we have to Africanize it and make sure that we are looking at things through our paradigm. Because that's what everyone else does in their particular religion. It's a means to an end. So we have to ask ourselves, how can we make this work for us? Okay, so that's why I said it it has to it has to change where you don't get caught up in the idealism but you have to focus on the reality and now how do you transform the reality that is into a better and brighter one okay so is it, as we consider you know ancestor Desmond Tutu may his uh name bring comfort may his legacy be a lamplight to others mm-hmm. and may his remembrance bring strength uh I, I still give respect to our ancestry i if we're considering him you know brother mm. easy d said that he'll be remembered for his tears and his laughter mm. if we're considering that mm-hmm. and we're looking at what he achieved uh, can we say that he achieved a lot or was he really a court jester of emotions riding mm. the waves of the chains that were being forced upon the South African so did he make the change or did he just get in front of it <laughs> I, I think you'll find that answer in in the various uh, articles that will be written in the days and weeks to come about Tutu's legacy and who writes them and what is being said about him. Okay. So Malcolm always says, whenever you have the press celebrating, particularly the white press celebrating uh, a, a black public figure, be leery. Always be leery. 
okay? Because it's almost like 2-2, and like I said, I don't know if he did this intentionally, but I, I have to ask myself, did he placate to white emotion? Hmm. And, and now, now here's a deeper thing. I had the uh, pleasure of meeting Donald Woods. Okay. The, the gentleman who, you know, wrote the book cry freedom and, you know, the movie was based on that. And I think back, people are talking more about Tutu than Donald Woods. White guy. So what, what, what is that saying? I, I, I think it says, I think it speaks to, was Desmond, was Desmond Tutu making white people comfortable? Okay. Instead of, instead of speaking truth to power as what real, uh, you know, Dr. Clark says, real rebel black ministers do. I would say uh, just looking at what Brother Easy D said, what changed? There's been no change. Things have gotten much worse under the ANC. That's the African National Congress, right? Right. So the ANC is the group that pushed the truth and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And, and you remember, the PAC was the militant part of the ANC before it broke off. So I grew up hearing that Desmond was a hero. Mm. You know, <clears throat> and but, now yeah, I'm looking, yeah. I'm looking at the situation and saying, you know, what has really changed? What is, right. you know, like EZD was saying, what has really changed? Mm-hmm. And, and how should we, how should we recognize and remember and consider the, uh, ancestor desmond tutor i'm not gonna say anything negative about right. him as a person mm-hmm. but i want to talk about the legacy and the actions and what else do we need to know before we can really judge his efficacy in this matter i think we have to look at his body of work okay was he and maybe EZD can can um, chime in on this. Was he a good, what I call soap? Was he a good servant of African people? Did he serve the greatest and highest good of African people? And I think we need to ask those South Africans, what do they think of Tutu's legacy. Now, Shakir, my friend in the Bronx, he was always, he, he told me that, you know, it was a real day of mourning when the news came that Tutu had made his transition and ascension. So it, it really kind of depends on who you talk to and who's telling the narrative of Tutu, because depending on who's the author, you may get a side of Tutu where 
they feel comfortable. And I think one of the things we also have to ask ourselves is, was there ever a time Desmond Tutu made white folks uncomfortable? So is making white folks uncomfortable the goal? Is that demonstrate efficacy? It's, well, it's not so much the goal of making white people uncomfortable, but it's about being unapologetically honest. You know, the old saying about the lion and the hunter and until the lions have historians, the hunter is always the hero. Okay. That's a far cry from saying that, uh, did he act to make white folks uncomfortable? Yeah, because all of those who spoke truth to power, part of it was making white people uncomfortable and being unapologetic about it. Who's going to make us uncomfortable enough to really make change? You know, I I, I see the value in telling the oppressive class, Mm -hmm. hey, you screwed up. You effed up. You're evil. Your actions have been evil. You're wrong. Things Mm got to change. Yeah. Oh, you benefited from things that three decades ago happened. Mm -hmm. Right. You benefited from things that happened two generations ago. Mm. You're maintaining a system that prevents people from rising and having a similar experience as your children and you. Right. But until we rise up and become uncomfortable, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I, I think the greater good would have been making us uncomfortable enough to overthrow the situation mm. rather than making the European uncomfortable enough to make some slight facial changes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and see, that's, that's the whole thing is like, do you want, do you want reformation or transformation? Okay. Two different paths requires two different mentalities, okay? Reformation, all you're trying to do is rearrange the furniture in the house. When we say transformation or revolution, you basically say that this house is corrupt and one of two things must happen. We need to tear this down and build a new house or we go find a better house in which to reside. Okay. All right. So EZD comes back with another banger, another banging comment. Yes, Minister Zumbi Tutu was a good human being, but he wanted to please everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no one can please right. everybody. It's mm-hmm. simply impossible. So basically, he failed. Yeah, there's an old saying please all and you please none. So that's why I kind of say that he was similar to like the court jester made everyone feel good, but I don't know if he affected any real change. No, I, I, I don't want to diminish his right actions mm-hmm. because somebody got to be the Chuck D and somebody got to be the Flavor Flav. Mm-hmm. 
and someone has to be the Professor Griff. <laughs> right. And it seems like you always want to bring Flav to the forefront because you can't stomach Chuck or Griff. Well, you got to keep the crowd hype, too. <laughs> True. But I mean, when, when you're talking about delivering it raw, uncut, uncensored. Okay. How many of us really have the stomach for that? How many of us have the stomach to say that the only education that African people need is an education to develop the power to either overthrow racism, white imperialism, or to successfully defend against racism, white imperialism? Okay, because nobody really wants to get their hands dirty. And so while Tutu and like and like you said, we don't want to denigrate what Tutu did, but sometimes when you deal with spiritual religious leaders, um, whatever their their theology is can sometimes handcuff them. Okay, case in point, let's look at King. For some reason, King had a problem with self-defense. Did he? Yeah, he, for whatever reason, he had a problem with self-defense because I knew when, when Malcolm had that meeting in Harlem at Juanita Portier's house, uh, Sidney Portier's first wife. Um, Malcolm basically says that he stands for self-defense. King was still riding that civil disobedience train, even though he allowed the platform of black militancy and ultimately black power to rise. He knew that he couldn't stop the young people from moving into a militant manner. Because I think he realized that even civil disobedient had its limits. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the other mistake that I think King made is that you look to a racist and a pedophile and used his prototype to fit your situation. Whoa, 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 whoa. So now you're yep. talking about Gandhi. Yep. Yes, sir. <laughs> let's let's keep it a buck. The, the the boy was a racist and a pedophile. All right, now now I knew that uh, you know Mahatma Gandhi didn't appreciate the African, the melanated, the black, the indigenous. No. You know. He, he didn't appreciate them. You know, as a matter of fact, when he was in South Africa, when he spent time there, yes. you know, he, he was recorded in saying some really demeaning stuff against our people. Yeah, particularly the Zulus. Okay. And then when he goes back to India. Now, before before we move back. Okay, to, yeah. But if he particularly spoke against the Zulus. Mm hmm. 
what is, you know, because like when we talk about black people, we, you know, we we glisten, we glow, we shine, we're beautiful, but we got some n words. <laughs> <laughs> we got some n words that just they just mess everything up, you know. <laughs> You know, my, my father-in-law would say, yeah, we got black folks and we got N-words. Mm. Um. <laughs> oh, so we got some shines. Nah, we got niggas. You know, <laughs> 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 we, got, <laughs> we got some straight up N-words. So <laughs> was he saying that the Zulus mm. were the N-words of the Africans? You know, or was he simply saying that he, he couldn't stand the Zulus? Or was he talking in a broader sense, our people? I always well, ask he, that question because I just don't know. Because, well, when you look at it and, and remember the time in which Gandhi moved in South Africa, basically he wanted to be a part of, because there were basically three categories in South Africa. You had black, you had colored, you had white. And... Gandhi had been, I think Gandhi had been mistreated somewhat. And he said that he wanted to be in a, in a, in a, a position to where he was treated much better than the Zulus. In fact, I dare say, and some, some may be shocked when I say this, I think Gandhi would have been more comfortable having dinner with Adolf Hitler than with Martin Luther King. Hmm. Okay. Because and you said he was a pedophile. Oh yeah, now, that's that's not something I've found that I've been privy to. Yeah, yeah, that's a. It, there's this one guy. He spoke. Um, he he's Indian, but I think he has connections to the Dalits of India. Okay, and. That's where I learned. He gave a two-hour lecture in New York. In fact, he was good friends with the ancestor uh, Renoko Rashidi. And he gave his thing about Gandhi and what Gandhi really stood for. And I always asked, because he was trying to get a cadre of Indians, because remember, the King Center in Atlanta, I think they still have a statue of Gandhi standing. And they wanted to warn the King Center, no, don't don't celebrate this man. You don't know him. In fact, and you may have heard this in Ghana, they they just basically took down um, the statue of Gandhi. I forgot what university it was in Ghana, but they yeah, know. The, yeah, the students took down Gandhi's statue because they know his history. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just checking stuff on the internet now, and of course, you can't trust anything you find on the internet, <laughs> <laughs> except when Minister Zumbi's dropping jewels. And <laughs> so this is saying that Gandhi slept with underage girls nude, including his own granddaughter. Yes, sir. Some people said he was obsessed with enema and even also had mentioned in passing how he used to sleep with underage girls and give each other enemas and then used to be this wife who okay uh th this is this is some groundbreaking stuff i hadn't heard this before now i knew that mahatma gandhi wasn't necessarily for us mm -hmm. and i thought it was always interesting that 
Dr. King was able to use a strategy not Gandhi created the strategy, you know, but he was right. he made it famous. You know, similar to, you know, I have to teach my well, it can't can't even say teach, but I have discussions with my Moorish Science Temple brothers and okay. my uh Hebrew Israelite brothers when they say they perpetrate the lie that Jesse Jackson created the term African American. <laughs> mm. I'm like, man, he popularized the term. Right. He brought it to the nation's consciousness, but he didn't create the term. Um, no, no, the first time, well, if you remember when Malcolm came back from, you know, making Hodge and then going around uh, the African, the Middle East and Asia, he began using the term Afro-American. Okay. And that's where we get when Malcolm saw the OAU, the Organization of African Unity. He came back to New York and formed the OAAU, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, based on the principles that he saw in the OAU. Okay, so really, I would say that Malcolm was really the first one to use uh, the term Afro-American before everybody was saying African-American. Oh, you're muted. One of the things I like bringing to the forefront is that Malcolm and Booker T. Washington and all those who were involved in in that uh, that conscious raising um, mm. were also in the company of Arturo Schomburg. Now, yes. Arturo Schomburg came from Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. and he developed the term Afro-Boricua mm. before Afro-American was even developed. So okay. if we look at the term, you know, we have this 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 Puerto Rican brother who came up with the term Afro-Boricua. Mm. He came to the United States. Mm -hmm. He starts hanging out with, you know, the contemporaries who were really involved in um, studying African history and the impact yeah. of the, uh, you know, the blacks and indigenous blacks in, in, in the world. Mm -hmm. And after he's involved with them, you start seeing the term Afro-American develop. Right. And then later, African-American. So, you know, I really pushed that back. You know, when we talk about the roots of black history, I say that Carter G. Woodson may have been the father, but the grandfather would have been Arturo Schomburg, and mm. Drusilla Houston would have been the grandmother of black history. Okay. Now, you know, would you also consider uh, William Leo Hansberry as part of that cadre as well? I hadn't before, but I see how he can be included. Okay, because I knew that was one of Dr. Clark's um, Jegnas. All right, so for yeah. un the for the uninitiated, a Jegna is a uh, a mentor, uh, a mentorship, an experience, something like that. Uh, we don't use the term mentor is easily. <laughs> Once you study what uh, a mentor a mentor dealt with those who have taken kids to the gymnasium, they were taking young men yeah. to the uh, areas where they would disrobe, mm. and they forced themselves upon these young men. This happened in Greece. This is Greek right. culture. Greek, you history. know. So if if you don't use Jegna, you can also use what I call GMT, Grandmaster Teacher. You know, you okay. can say GMT. Now, 
Now, to be honest with you, I still use the term mentor because I realize that in here in the States, it doesn't have that understanding. Most people don't understand the roots of it. Okay. So you may hear me use the term mentor. That's my mentor. I'm involved in a mentorship program. Just to right. be honest. Because <laughs> mm, okay. somebody's okay. going to call me on it. Somebody's going <laughs> to call me on it. <laughs> but, you know, look, we're here to kind of discuss, uh, you know, ancestor Desmond Tutu. Mm. So as we delved a little bit off and we talked about black history and we talked mm. about those seminal people who helped create that consciousness and we, we, we discussed those things as a side note to get back to the main point. And the yeah. point was, how do we consciously remember, celebrate, and value the ancestor Desmond Tutu now that he's in the ancestor realm? Oh, boy. I, I wonder if that's going to be an issue of time because... His passing is so, it's it's still very raw for a lot of people. And maybe there needs to be some time to elapse so we can really look back on his legacy and, and make a, I don't want to say judgment, but an analysis. You know, what what was... What did he do beneficial for African people? What was detrimental that he's done with African people? And then give an overall, I guess you would say an overall grade of whether or not, and I wouldn't even call Desmond Tutu a race first man. Well, so would we call him a Christ first man or a love first man? I know that you're a race first person. Right. I am and, as well. Right. And, and I think that's part of the issue with those coming out of a spiritual tradition. Because sometimes, sometimes people feel, okay, who am I first? Am I fill in the blank, Christian, Muslim, Hebrew, etc. first? Or am I African first? So it's almost like they feel like it has to be an either or when it can be a both and. So I, I guess, honestly, it depends on who you're asking. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a understanding of a deity and that deities walk first person if you're christian or muslim or you know uh you know pick a pick a religion you know ifa yeah. you know if you're that first <laughs> okay well i'm not sure if the odun would say that <laughs> the same thing that the what the christian uh pastors teach um okay in some areas. And so, I mean, the wisdom is wisdom, you know. Right. One of the things that I've found is too many of us, as we get knowledge of self, mm -hmm. you know, we want to reject things. But, you know, the Bible, the Quran, the Odun, they always say, hey, seek seek ye wisdom. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, 
Wisdom's in the Bible. Wisdom's in the Quran. Wisdom's in the Hamagila. Wisdom's in the Madunater. Wisdom's in the Odun. Mm-hmm. You know, wisdom can be found in in the quotes from Desmond Tutu. Yeah. There's some wisdom there. Right. And and even the Quran teaches study the universe for those who seek now and seek the pleasure of Allah God. And if we want to look at what can Desmond Tutu teach us? Well, could he be a cautionary tale of what not to do? You know, um, thinking of my father, mm-hmm. uh, he was a wonderful example of what to do and a cautionary tale of what not to do. Okay. And so, you know, you know, KRS-One talks about the dichotomy and that all of us have both sides to us. You know, mm. none of us are truly polar one anything. Um, right. So an example with my father is, you know, in terms of solving and serving the community and solving problems and helping people become um, clean and get off of drug substance abuse problems, helping people heal after they've been traumatized, you know, uh, preaching the Christian gospel and uh, actually making sure that people of African descent, indigenous people knew their culture and celebrated their culture. Right. He did great in those areas. He wasn't great with the money. (laughs) On his deathbed, on his deathbed, one of the things he left with me was like, hey, I taught you how to be a good man. Hopefully I've been a great example of a husband. Uh, you know, I asked you when I tried to guide you to become a good Christian. Um, I've helped you become an upright man. Um, mm-hmm. But I was not able to teach you how to handle money. Mm-hmm. And so I want you to learn how to handle money and to support and teach the rest of the family. And that was his kind of deathbed guidance to me. And he, okay. he said it numerous times before he became an ancestor. Uh, mm. You know, so after he passed, I got involved in financial uh, services and I provided financial services to folk for a while. But he, there's a dichotomy there. He was okay. great in certain things and he, and he self-analyzed and stated that he was horrible in other things. Mm. You know, so right. there were a couple of times when the lights went off in our house. There were yeah. a couple of times when the water went off, <laughs> you know. Um, so when we look at the ancestor Desmond Tutu, I think we're going to have to take the celebrate the good. And also, like you just stated, recognize that there's a cautionary tale of what not to do. Right. You you know, you don't want to get into a situation where I always say treat everything and everyone like a Chinese buffet. Take the best, leave the rest. Because if you keep coming to that buffet long enough, there's something that Mr. Wang is going to put in there that you're going to want to eat. So just kind of treat everyone and everything like a buffet. Like I said, take take the best, leave the rest. I say that. Hey, look, brother, I think we're getting towards the end of this discussion. Mm. Um, you know, 
tell us very quickly about goat. <laughs> goat, goat. You know, is... tell us about goat. And is there any way that you can connect goat? You know, Minister Zombie. Any way that you can connect goat to what Desmond Tutu should have done? Well, you know what's interesting about goat. Um, and I'm going to mention my friend Shakir. Okay. He actually was seeing a manuscript of GOAT as it was, you know, evolving and progressing until it became the book that you have today. He's been my number one evangelist. Now, this is a gentleman coming out of apartheid. And he was saying that two things changed his views on money, economics, finance. One, uh, coming to the U.S., and secondly, my book, because there were simple things in the book where I talk about the 10% solution, you know, pay yourself first. He said it took him five years to understand that concept. And then it took him a couple of more years to understand when I said, make your money work for you. Because he had been taught, you know, that you should always work for money. But because of this book and its principles, and we were talking about this yesterday, you know, Shakir said that the reason why he likes it is because I, I basically marry culture and economics together. So that way he wouldn't be ashamed of money. He wouldn't have to be, as we used to say back in the 90s, poor righteous teachers. <laughs> okay so i said if 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 that book can help him at least economically get through apartheid then who else can it's you know who else can benefit from this book hmm. okay i mean me just watching him evolve over time i mean we even talked about like he just had a daughter back in june and we're already, she's going to be the guinea pig of that book. I say, I say. Okay. So. And, and, um, and what book are we talking about? We're, we're talking about GOAT, the, the Gospel of Afronomics Theology, which is what I call a 21st century blueprint for black economic power. Okay. And you can find this book in all the melanated bookstores. Mm -hmm. All the indigenous bookstores and on Amazon. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, so <clears throat> and, you know, like I said, this particular book is about 23 years of my personal experience and my research in what I now call um, the science of beef. Beef standing for business, economics, entrepreneurship, and finance. Okay. Ooh, you, you, you're killing us with the acronyms, bro. <laughs> <laughs> What's beef? Beef is business, economics. <laughs> entrepreneurship and finance. Entrepreneurship and finance. All right, so when Biggie asks what's beef, that's what we're going to hear from this point on. Hey, we want to salute our, uh, our partner brother, in this struggle, our struggle brothers, I used to say back in the day, uh, peace to the God body, peace almighty, easy D. And he says, one of my heroes in the mm -hmm. South African story is 
the beautiful Winnie Mandela, a true freedom fighter and warrior. But the West tried to demonize her and Nelson was forced to divorce her. And he We're going to have so to do right. a show on that, man. We're going to have to do it because, yo, Winnie was a writer. Oh, yeah. Winnie was a writer. I mean, Winnie was like, you know, I'm going to stand by my man and I'm going to stand by the struggles. I'm going to stand right. by my people. Mm-hmm. And, now, and you know what's interesting? She may when, have been a little too much for Nelson. Well, here's, here's, here's one thing I remember. One, one thing I do remember, Brother Steve Coakley was telling a story about, here's Winnie Mandela. I think she came to New York or D.C. And there were 300,000 people ready for Winnie to really spit fire. But all of a sudden, some anonymous message came that she wasn't going to speak. And we still don't know who gave the message. Okay. Because she knows she's got 300,000 supporters here in America. Black folk. That, that were waiting to hear the first lady of South Africa speak. You know, it kind of reminds me when when the Congo had gained its independence and Patrice Lumumba stood up and made that six minute speech. He said, brothers, don't forget how we got here. Mm. Okay, don't forget about the beatings that we took from race soldiers with the German shepherds. Okay, don't forget that we had to go toe to toe with them. Okay, so there wasn't no negotiation except the negotiation in blood on the battlefield. And I think you're leading us into the next conversation, good brother. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so we've been learning and earning with Minister Zumbi Shawala, author of Gospel of Afronomics Theology. His parting words, and I guess his parting guidance, is be a cop, a creator, yes, an owner, and a producer. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can always look for the gospel of Afronomics theology in your, you know, favorite melanated bookstore on Amazon. You can also find Minister Zumbi here on the Our Black Empowerment channel on YouTube. You know, you can go to the Get On Code podcast and mm-hmm. you can find him on the Get On Code podcast when he shows up. Uh, he showed up a couple of times and drops the bomb. So we want you to follow this good brother. And we also want to say salute to our good brother, Easy D, man. Peace. Peace Peace. to you, brother. Peace to you. Knowledge, knowledge. Knowledge, knowledge. Um, Thank you, Easy D. Thank you, Minister Zumbi. And, uh, hey, go out and be a cop. Be a creator and owner and producer. Peace, and we love y'all. All right?